0: Welcome. Uh, Today is Tuesday, the 5th of October, 2021. Welcome to Shevega Podcast. We're proudly sponsored by the world's most comprehensive premium and complete supplements formulated and crafted by experts in veterinary nutrition, ethics, and sustainability. Now, I am delighted um, to have as a guest uh, Professor David Clough. He's a British author and academic with a focus on the Christian, vegetarian, and vegan movements. He's Professor of Theological Ethics in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at the University of Chester and a Methodist preacher. He's also the founder and co director of Creature Kind Project, which focuses on the welfare of farmed animals as a faith issue. He's the author of a number of books on animal rights, and in particular, the use of animals for food, including his two volume monograph entitled On Animals, volume one and two, systematic theology, something I'm really looking forward to reading, delighted to have purchased. And I wish I had done this before the podcast, but just really delighted and looking forward to those uh, two seminal uh, works. David's written articles on the ethics of the use of animals for food, including consuming animal creatures, the Christian ethics of eating animals, and he's given a number of keynote speeches um, and has been a participant, including with Peter Singer on the theology and ethics of the treatment of non-human animals. I met David back in 2019 when he very kindly spoke at the University of Law on a panel uh, on animal ethics. So. Absolutely delighted to have you, uh, David. Welcome.
1: Thanks, Ruby. It's lovely to be here.
0: Thank you. So I suppose the first um, question I have for you, David, is what started you on this journey?
1: So, I think maybe these origins are mysteries even to ourselves sometimes, but as I look back, I'm aware of developing an increased sensitivity to animal issues during my teenage years. Um, I remember a class presentation uh, that a fellow classmate gave about animal experimentation and the LD50 test and so on when I was sort of 15, 16. And I was remember being utterly appalled by that. Um, It took me until I was 18 and going away to university before I decided to become vegetarian uh, myself. Um, I think I felt at that point, um, okay, this is a decision entirely within my control. Here's something you know that I, that I can take responsibility for, and it seemed an obvious choice um, at that point. Um, and then I think I was aware that uh, among the Christians that I knew, uh, fellow sort of church goers, uh, and as I began to develop academic interests, sort of through masters and doctoral work. I was aware that concern for animals seemed to be quite an unusual uh, preoccupation. Um, and that led me, um, when I began to think uh, sort of beyond a PhD and beyond my first book, okay, what, what, what do I want uh, to write about? Um, uh, Christianity, Christianity and animals seemed an, an obvious topic because it seemed really important to me. It seemed to be obvious relate, obviously related to uh, Christian faith and theology, but it seemed like uh, not very many people were, were taking notice of it. Um, so I think there was kind of sort of quite a long build in to me thinking about this as a research topic, you know, through that personal experience and biography.
0: And how has the journey been since in terms of sort of delving uh, pretty uh, incredibly deeply into this subject? How is that journey and what has been the support from uh, your faith uh, on, on this journey?
1: Yeah, so I've been researching the place of animals in Christian theology and ethics for probably 15 years or so now. And it's been a very interesting uh, sort of period, and and a lot has changed, I think, since uh, 15 years ago. Um, So I remember when I was first going around giving sort of seminar papers at universities and theological colleges, you know, I had some concerns that, uh, you know, people would think either this was a topic that wasn't of any theological interest or that uh, the kinds of arguments I was making as to how Christian theology and ethics should be interpreted in relation to animals would be um, rejected or thought um, unorthodox or um, something like that. But I I quickly found that the way I was able to talk to uh, fellow academics and fellow church members about uh, animals in the context of christian faith commitments found a, a ready audience um you know the numbers of people who sort of flat out rejected the kinds of uh, arguments that I was making I could probably count on one hand really over those 15 years and there's lots of proper and entirely appropriate debate about um, sort of points of detail and practical um, issues about where we go from here but what I was really struck by is that, it felt like just sort of naming the issue that Christians have really strong faith-based reasons for being concerned about the welfare of animals that seems to be um you know very widely accepted and the the challenge then seems to me to be how to take people beyond that to recognize what that might involve in terms of practical commitments
0: what were the arguments uh, used by the antagonists or those who did not agree with you
1: so there's um, one sort of type of of, of argument um, that would be representing the concerns of Christianity as as fundamentally to do with human beings, um, and so the, you know the, t- the technical academic term would be anthropocentrism. Everything is centered on the human. Uh, and you mentioned being on a panel with Peter Singer. Um, so um, Peter's been responsible for uh, a lot of people getting the idea that Christianity is antagonistic to animals that it um, is only concerned about human well-being um, um, you know, some people would also say it's just concerned about um, sort of whether human beings get to go to heaven or not and so that kind of um, those that strand of, of uh, interpretation of Christian theology uh, that says that uh, the concerns of Christian theology are very narrow. It's about divine relationship with human beings. It's about human salvation. And we're not very interested in very much apart from that. That is going to lead to a theology which is very unlikely to be attentive to the well-being of uh, animals. Um, and, But that's by no means the whole of uh, Christian theology or what um, most churches uh, believe in. So a lot of Christians would recognize a much much wider remit for christian theology and recognize that confessing a god who is the creator and sustainer of all creatures means that christians have got in you know uh, alongside uh, members of other religious traditions have got really strong reasons for recognizing uh, a concern for animals as a as, as an issue that um is theirs um and Some of Peter Singer's views and those of other animal advocates in relation to uh, Christianity and other religious traditions of animals are problematic, I think, because they um, have contributed to a kind of positioning of an animal's issue within a political spectrum, which is uh, really unhealthy. So, if you're kind of on the religious right of the U.S., uh, you know you're um, uh, pro-life, but often, until at least until recently. Uh, you thought you had reasons for disbelieving climate science, and the kind of animal stuff gets, you know, lumped in with with that kind of political uh, divide. And so because uh, Peter and others have said uh, Christianity is, you know, the the root of um, ideological views that uh, cause people to be unkind to animals, I think both Uh, The animals movement has thought, uh, well, we won't have we won't think very much about um, religious traditions. Then let's ignore that. Uh, But also some religious people have been, you know, have accepted that view. Oh, we must be the kind of people that don't agree with the kind of atheistic animal liberation uh, agenda. And so a lot of the work that I've been trying to do is is been sort of bridge building um, and to undo what I think. uh, a partial or erroneous understandings about how uh, Christianity in particular uh, might engage uh, with concern for animals in a way that might help Christians uh, to see this as something that is, uh, you know, fundamental and integral to their existing uh, commitments. And so partly that's Arguments about how to interpret, uh, how, to, how best to interpret the Bible and later Christian theological traditions, but also it's a telling of history. So it's, you know, in the 19th century in Britain, it, you know, Christians were at the forefront of campaigning for legislation. Um, the first um, legislation, you know, um, making it illegal to be cruel to farmed animals. And at the end of the 19th century, Christians were at the forefront of anti-vivisection uh, movements that were, you um, combating you know in in arguments with um athe- uh, atheistic movements um uh like um you know charles darwin and, and and huxley were scientists of their day saying scientists should be able to do what they want to animals and christians were making arguments saying no we we recognize that these as fellow creatures that are vulnerable creatures and we have obligations to them and not to be just trying to increase our knowledge at their expense and so there's the kind of relationship between concern for animals and and faith is much much more complicated uh, than people have tended uh, to assume
0: that that that's um, really incredible sort of uh insight um uh david and on and, and one thing that i really relish uh, in terms of uh you know reviewing uh you know articles and your work is the fact that you do bridge build and you don't polarize debates you really do look to engage and articulate Um, incredibly eloquently, uh, you know, the messaging that you have, which I think is so, so important, particularly in today's world where we are incredibly polarized, you know, you're either right or wrong, and it's, you know, uh, black or white, and life isn't as simple as that. So I really, really do appreciate that. Now, I have um, a question just to unpack. uh, You mentioned the word, actually two words. One is Um, the anthropocentric and the second is welfare. So let's start with anthropocentric. Um, For our listeners, um, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, uh, today, well, a lot of perception or history in terms of religion um, is based very much on human-centric, where the center of the universe and, you know, uh, we're made in the image of God, etc. And you may have monotheistic religions, ultimately man is you know the king the ultimate the highest you know unpack your thoughts on that i'd love your perspective on that um and then we'll we'll develop we'll ask uh we'll go into the second uh point around welfare
1: yeah so anthropocentrism the belief that human beings are kind of the, the sort of center of value or it's all about us in relation to sort of thinking about um the meaning of our existence and um the meaning of of the kind of universe that we find around us, I think I think reflecting and and encountering that is is really the key challenge uh, for the animals movement as such, you know, let alone just in relation to religion, because uh, it's true that a lot of religions have been resolutely anthropocentric in the way that they've been uh, described. So they've been seeking to affirm, uh, you know, know, they've been understandably interested in what um, Belief in God means for human beings. You know, of course, we're interested in what that means um, for us. Uh, but many Christianity, alongside other religious traditions, uh, has often uh, pictured human beings as either the sole or primary object of God's uh, concern. Um, and so um, I think Christian you know some interpretations of Christianity have been rightly criticized for that and uh, some of the work I do is uh, having arguments with uh, not just fellow Christians today but theologians earlier in the Christian tradition uh, about some of the things um, that um, you know they say um, and you um, Trying to make the case that, that there are actually really good um, and plausible interpretations of biblical and theological traditions uh, in which uh, anthropocentrism um, uh, is, is, by, is, is is a fairly impl- implausible interpretation. Um, so, for example, lots of Christians, I think, have the view that God made animals for the sake of human beings. Yeah, But it's really striking that that's that's not that's nowhere stated in the bible for example that's you you can't point to a text uh which says that there are texts about uh, god granting dominion of human beings over other creatures but even there there seems to be very strong limits and very strong expectations about responsibility for what that kind of powerful role uh, might entail um and so uh, there's a part of the Part of the, when I was um, invited to um, give a paper at a conference where Christian ethics was engaging Peter Singer's work, one of the things I wanted to say to uh, Peter, and he, you know, to his credit, he listened carefully, um, was that um, I think it's quite unlikely that Christianity is this kind of unique justification for exploitation of animals. It seems to me much more likely that he, pretty much everywhere where human beings have gained Substantial power over other animals because we're the kind of creatures we are, we've tended to exploit them for our own ends without enough thought um, uh, about what constitutes their well being. And then, in order to justify what we've probably got a slightly bad conscience about, once we recognize commonalities with other animals, we've wanted to reach for justifications from whatever worldview is kind of around at the time in order to explain why it's uh, not only something we do, but something we're right to do. And so I think Christianity has been used in lots of places to, to kind of prop up really problematic exploitation of other animals, but the... Um, but what I think is wrong to assume is that that's the only way that religion uh, and Christianity in particular can function uh, in this debate. I think there are all kinds of uh, faith based resources for rethinking that relationship. As I said before, if you if you believe in a God who um, creates and declares good and loves and cares for um, every creature, not just uh, human creatures, um, and the Bible gives us ample reason to uh, want to af- affirm, you know, the breadth of God's uh, care. Then it's it's quite implausible to think that there's only one kind of creature uh, of of all the myriad uh, kinds of uh, animals that God is uh, concerned about. And once you begin to open your eyes to that question, you find right through the Christian Bible um, affirmations about God's care for. Uh, animals in all kinds of ways and injunctions on humans to be uh, kind to domesticated animals and very strong rules about uh, under what circumstances it's appropriate to kill animals for food uh, and and so on so it seems to me that it's a sort of non necessary relationship between, uh, you know, Christianity and justifying exploitation for animals, and that this anthropocentrism is a real problem for the secular, for, for, for views of humans and animals in a secular context as well, you know, you don't necessarily generate positive views of our animals just by ditching god uh, you might still think of human you know so so you can have atheistic humanism that is centering the human in in, in you know as bad or even worse away way uh, as the as the center of value, and so countering and reflecting on and thinking about how to deconstruct different versions of anthropocentrism, I think is a is an issue whether or not you're um, engaging with animals in a religious context or a secular context.
0: I think it's a really important um, uh, distinction that you make between that. I think that's really uh, important because you have justification if you're a Christian and then you have sort of non-responsibility or allowance or you know uh, on the other on the on the secular um uh, point um i suppose it always feels like there needs to be a massive tidy up in terms of the interpretation and the way we've just rehashed uh you know from generation to generation without really thinking why we say and do what we do
1: yes i think you could put it that way but but what i'm struck by as well is that actually the, the systems that justify human exploitation of animals uh, today are very much needed to justify the kinds of practice that we're currently engaged with. So, so I, I think there's a kind of disorientating sense in which the practice comes first and the theory comes afterwards, which I think we need to attend to. Ooh, I think- Give an
0: example, David, give an example for the audience.
1: Well, so if I'm talking to, um, uh, a public meeting about how farmed animals are being treated, and uh, you know the argument that I, I would want to make uh, that you know the vast majority of um, animals being farmed um, are treated in uh, unacceptable ways that we should um, um, be very concerned about and should cause us to think differently about what the animal products we we, we purchase. Then I'm really aware that some of the resistance and some of the questions that come back um, are understandably rooted in the sense of, wait a minute, if I accepted what you're saying, then I'm going to have to make some really strong changes which are not attractive to me at all
0: from a business perspective so we're talking about money here is that the
1: underlying but but money but also habit and convenience and taste preference and um what it means to be part of a kind of multi-generational family who's for whom you know these kinds of practices you know we always um we always had um uh turkey uh christmas or we always had a roaster for sunday lunch um so if, wait a minute, if what you're saying is true, does that mean there was something wrong with all of you? Know? So it's it's a really big uh, shift to ask people to think differently about this stuff. And, and so part of the reason people resist thinking differently is because they know that thinking differently would require them in conscience to be acting differently, and they really don't want to act differently. And so part of the reason I think we're, we're still stuck with, what are fairly implausible claims about humans' right to exploit other animals? Is because it's only when we believe those fairly implausible things that we think ourselves justified in in participating in the kind of exploitation of animals that's that's currently going on. So, so, so in that sense, um, the challenge is much more than getting people to realise that we've got some theological or philosophical um, sort of untidy ends to tie up. You know, it's how we might use and engage people in theological or other kinds of religious or secular conversation that has the potential to open them up to the possibility that they need to think and act differently. And that's, I think that's a really big ask.
0: Uh, You're absolutely right. So when you think about it, it's a Herculean task because you're looking at a massive paradigm cultural uh, shift, but that's been done in history. So, have you ever drawn, as many do, distinctions or comparisons with what happened with slavery and the sort of mindset there, and how sometimes the Bible was used for justification—that uh, uh, you know, uh, slaves or you know that that was permissible in the Bible?
1: Yeah. So, I think there there are lots of ways in which it is helpful to think about. Um, slavery and treatment of animals as kind of parallel cases although obviously as soon as we begin to note sort of name that connection we need to recognize that there are really profound dissimilarities too and just making a sort of rush from um, uh, the treatment of animals um, uh, African and other peoples that were sort of, um, you know, sold, sold into slavery and trafficked by uh, my uh, uh, forebears, uh, white inhabitants of, of Britain uh, and other uh, colonial powers and appallingly abused um, in the Americas and elsewhere. We need to sort of recognize that that, that is both particular <laughs> and that there might be some things we can learn from that practice, which relates to uh, the way we treat animals too. And some really interesting um, academic work that's beginning to show very strong and uncomfortable connections between, um, the, between mistreatment of animals and um, mistreatment of enslaved uh, humans in uh, the Caribbean and elsewhere, where you know on any given plantation, Um, it was a kind of it was just a judgment you know can we more more efficiently do the work of this plantation using um, non-human animal labor or uh, human slave labor and you know switches were made between those uh, two and so there are lots of ways in which um, you you know the the sort of parallel similarities Um, and as you say um, it's really interesting to uh, reflect on how the Bible gets used in both of those contexts as well. Um, so the Bible was widely used to justify the practice of uh, enslavement of African uh, peoples and, and other peoples. It was used in uh, racist and white supremacist ways to, to suggest that there was some divine mandate for uh, uh, the exploitation of people of color by uh, white people because of some you know, kind of a Uh, original and theologically justified um, uh, uh, basis. Um, Enslaved peoples were told that their Christian duty was to be obedient uh, to to slave masters. Um, And so all kinds of ways in which Christianity and uh, biblical interpretation were complicit in the structures of justification for uh, slavery. And then there were other Christians that were saying, no, this doesn't, Makes sense. The Bible also tells us that we ought to love our neighbors and care for the vulnerable, and if we have a proper understanding of Christian faith, we need to recognize that has radical implications for how our society is run and radically liberatory implications for uh, oppressed peoples uh, such as uh, the enslaved Africans uh, that we're, you know, deriving an economic benefit from. Um, and so that was a debate internal to Christianity, as well as you know, one that other people were participating in. Um, and I think there are really interesting similarities uh, then with the, with the animals case, because um, Christianity has been weaponized to uh, justify exploitation of animals and to sort of close down uh, critique of that, um, and also uh, christian tradition has include you know incorporates uh very strong uh trajectories uh that have really uh uh, you know radical implications for, for for rethinking our treatment um of animals and so that is also an internal debate uh within uh christianity about what's the best reading of these texts in relation to christian ethical responsibility for animals and that's what i see myself as a sort of active participant in
0: and, and a critical critical component and here's something david i mean and again i've still got that question parked around the welfare so sort of holding uh, mm-hmm. that um but what i find um fascinating is within these sort of cultural or sort of these time sort of context that we have where is uh, the responsibility of Uh, you know, sort of uh, leaders in sort of faith based, um, uh, you know, religions, and now, of course, it's not only Christianity, we've got um, an upsurge of young Muslims who are not happy with the halal or the Ramadan. um, And they use, um, you know, whether it was Pythagoras or Socrates, you know, talking very wisely that you didn't need to slaughter a real animal for the gods, you could do something that was created out of grass and, and do that because it was symbolic. But where now is the responsibility and how do you see, uh, you know, some sort of uh, catalyst uh, for engagement, because we know that the Catholics um, that forgive me the Pope. um, uh, You know, introduced a canon that uh, animals have souls, so that was you know, a couple of years back that was great to hear that so it sort of elevated the status of um, animals, what do you see happening first the question around responsibility and what do you think could be done.
1: Um, we need to come back to animal souls because the pope was sort of widely misquoted in relation to to um uh, that teaching and um sort of reported in new york times on on a basis that that was turned out to be not quite what what was um originally said um but so what's the responsibility of faith leaders and 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 people of faith well um a lot of uh, my time at the moment is trying to persuade uh, fellow Christians that this is something that is 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 worth attention. Um, and, you know, I think it's the responsibility of, you know, all, all Christians, Christian leaders um, and people of other faith traditions to um, sort of reflect on what their religious tradition commits them to and how that um, interacts with, you know, the situation in which we find ourselves. And to me, it seems, okay, there's a whole lot we need to be concerned with at the moment as, as, as people of faith, but um, the uh, concern for animals seems to me to be uh, an urgent issue in terms of its scale and extremity, and, um, and so uh, I would be seeking to you know t- talk to other uh christians and faith leaders and say this is something that, that is worth our attention e- even though we're busy with all kinds of with, um uh other human social justice issues and environmental uh issues uh, paying attention to animals is something that um is required of us as uh people of faith and we can't just defer that until everything else is sorted out because <laughs> that will be deferring it forever um and so i and i and the the way that I would uh, try and make that case is that, especially in our use of animals for food, which you know, is in terms of which is you know orders of magnitude bigger than than any other human use of animals at the moment, um, I think religious people and communities, in particular, ought to be rec- able to recognize the significance of food the significance of food to religious traditions you know christians gather around uh, the lord's table and a sort of sacred uh, meal a vegan meal interestingly um but you know food is a really important part of uh christianity and other religious traditions and so being prepared to think uh in religious terms about the food that we eat uh, and recognize what the implications are for fellow human and non-human creatures of what we decide to purchase, put on our plates and consume. That seems to me a really productive and useful starting point uh, to engage uh, uh, fellow Christians and and members of other faith traditions uh, too.
0: Uh, I absolutely agree with you David and the other thing is your timing um, and as a catalyst to this issue issue is absolutely pertinent because we know now um, most recently um, uh, you know uh, faith leaders are talking about climate change and the biggest contributor to this is animal uh, you know the animal uh, agriculture and 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 the whole industry and it's as and forgive me for the use of this sort of uh, hyper word you know it, it is incredibly Toxic. How much money is used in lobbying, marketing, um, you know, distortion um, of messaging, um, and you know, even by medical, uh, you know, entities. Um, even the way medical students are trained, or even veterinary students are trained. It's as you say, it's systemic. The issue um so i i really do believe that right now if you were to uh, not necessarily act in a silo of just the you know from christianity and the animals but you were to activate and engage and collaborate with other sort of issues with faith leaders climate change is absolutely number one because ultimately you know um it's it's our only home it's our only planet
1: yeah and and so the intersection between um animal uh, welfare issues and uh, the climate is really significant we definitely can't fix the climate crisis um or we can't mitigate um the harms that are coming at us currently and in the future from the climate crisis we can't we can't address that seriously without rethinking uh, mass industrialized animal agriculture um but it's really striking to me that there's also a sort of uh, a competition for bandwidth and attention, you know, within that climate uh, question, and a contest of different um, proposed solutions uh, to um, to to the situation that we face. And so, some people are suggesting that we um, delink animal agriculture and climate change by further intensifying animal agriculture, so that you make it um, less carbon intensive. Um, so if you um, breed uh, cows that reach slaughter weight in half the time then their lifetime methane emissions uh, will be halved and you know those those kinds of um uh initiatives and so i think it's really important for people concerned about animals both to be absolutely open to make making common cause um you know in relation to environmental concerns and human social justice concerns you know i'm really exercised at the moment by the fact that we haven't got enough people in britain to kill the animals that we want to kill for the for the food system because these are nasty jobs. They're not well remunerated. They subject workers to high risks of physical and mental uh, injury. And so unsurprisingly, um, pre-Brexit, they were being done mostly by migrant workers who are now absent. And so we find we don't have enough people to kill all the chickens and pigs that we need uh, to, to kill. And so it's, it's really important, I think, for animals, people to be alert to these intersections with environment and human um, uh, issues but also we need to be keeping animals as part of the focus to avoid the kind of win-lose solutions either in relation to human social justice or the environment that uh, are going to mean that um, animal welfare issues and concern for animals get sidelined in pursuit of some sort of absolute climate goal
0: It's a very good point, uh, David, certainly around sort of supply chains and human rights issues. You're absolutely right. And it's quite chronic in terms of the uh, human rights violations for individuals who work on the sort of uh, factory floors, which are incredibly intensive, incredibly traumatic. And there have been studies done in terms of the link between domestic violence, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: um, you know, crimes uh, from individuals who are working there. So where is our responsibility uh, to them? As mm-hmm. you know, as fellow um, human beings, you're absolutely right. But then, of course, there is the problem, uh, for instance, where they have then sort of created these uh, hazmat, you know, suits where they go in and everything's very sort of uh, clinical, and you're they're so detached from the whole sort of kill process that uh, they go in and and work very perfunctory um, and completely sort of uh, disconnected and we want to avoid that as well so um, difficult difficult um, uh, issues, but now this links in very nicely to the second question, Uh, we were talking about sort of human welfare now you mentioned the word animal welfare now um and forgive me for being very generalistic and i may be sort of using trigger words but for instance um a lot of individuals will say um it's not just about welfare we're talking about an abolitionist argument which is uh you know and then the legal points about sort of rights and then of course legally you cannot give something rights if it doesn't have the ability to respond or hold responsibility for it so of course you have the whole jurisprudential academic arguments going on I'd like to understand, David, your your when you say animal welfare, what does that mean from your context?
1: Well, sort of one basic position that I think ought to be, um, you know, a, a very broad uh, consensus. You know, within Christianity, other religious traditions, and um, in, uh, uh, in 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 uh, secular context too is that we should be concerned for the well-being of fellow animal creatures you know so that, so that so that would be a starting point for me uh, that we've got moral reason you know in in opposition to some accounts of ethics that have said humans only humans matter ethically i think it's really um uh clear and important that we make the case that no animals matter too um and so that's a sort of bedrock which which doesn't go you know uh, anything like as far enough as, as as far as you know many animals um uh activists would, would would want to but i think it's really important common ground to be to be able to uh make that claim um and there's i think it's quite hard to dispute but to be to be prepared to d- defend that know the well-being of animals matters so that that i think is an important uh starting point um and then of course, um, a lot of people would say, well, it's it's not just uh, the well that well-being of animals matters, but we don't have the right to do uh, you know th- these particular things, like in a context where we uh, don't aren't. Uh, forced to kill animals for food for example where we've got plenty of nutritious plant-based uh, foods to choose from um, then we don't have the right to kill animals for food uh, when we don't need to and i'm very sympathetic uh, to that argument i'm vegan myself and um i think that um the the sort of non-necessary killing of animals for human food is is uh, you know a, a, an argument that i'd be prepared to have with fellow christians and uh, and others. And so, um, so, so that's, that's, that I think is a correct moral analysis. Um, and then the next question that follows for me is, well, what does that mean in terms of how we engage a, a sort of wider constituency with this goal of uh, rethinking um, the horrendous exploitation of animals. And there you've got, within the animals movement, you've got different views and you've got people with good reasons for holding different views. And it's a real disagreement, just like you might have theological and religious disagreements within religious movements. Uh, So some people want to say, well, we're not going to engage at all with anything other than uh, an argument for abolition of um, human use of animals, um, because, um uh because if we do that as soon as we start to engage with uh questions about how animals should be kept if they're being used for food that uh, helps to justify the whole process so we'll have nothing to do with that and we'll just make um, a campaign in relation to uh, abolition Um, so i see the merits of that um i'm absolutely convinced in the context where I'm working of engage, trying to engage fellow Christians. I'm absolutely convinced that's not a, going to be a productive strategy to in, to in, encourage large-scale sort of change uh, among uh, uh, among Christians, because um, if I if that was the only message I was prepared to engage um, with 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 people about, I think um, you know in, a, in an audience of a uh, hundred there might be one or two or five people who were, oh yeah, you're absolutely right, David, I'm gonna go vegan uh, starting tonight. Um, uh, But the vast majority of people would see that as so foreign, so um, demanding, so extreme, so other to everything that they've kind of understood up to this point, they would basically be um, either unmoved or maybe even strengthened in their kind of committedness to what they're currently doing. And so, my and so this is basically a, a sort of disagreement about theory of change within the animals movement. I'm convinced that for the kind of audience I'm trying to address, that's my sort of principal uh, goal. I need to build up slowly, I need to say, okay can we agree that we've got faith-based reasons for being concerned about animals? And then if we take a careful look at what we're currently doing, doesn't it seem like there's something really badly wrong and out of keeping with what we say we believe about animals? And then what might, what do you think might be the first steps in sort of moving beyond that? And so, and so that that's for me why it's really important to be talking about animal welfare, because um, I think that's a way of building Uh, coalitions and building uh, common ground uh, in a way that's likely to lead to beneficial changes. But I I absolutely see that the arguments for activists that, that that take a different view. I just think, uh, well, I'm currently persuaded that this is the best way to do the job I'm trying to do uh, within a sort of wider overall task.
0: I, I really admire um, your approach. I really admire it. Um, I, I've, I, I've experienced everything that you state and I'm sure many others have to the point where you become quite hermitic because you won't go to Christmas gatherings where you know, you're know you sitting with the flesh of an animal and you find that really, you, know, you, you struggle with your own sort of uh, integrity or your sort of uh, you know alignment. Um, and certainly I went to a, a Quaker meeting, I used to travel a lot and sometimes I didn't have plans for the weekend. So just as a sense of getting community, I would um, just join a Quakers meeting on Sunday. And um, I, I, I stretched them, bless them, by bringing in my 14-year-old Springer Spaniel to, <laughs> to <laughs> the meetings <laughs> that never had that before. And <laughs> then I stretched them even further by um, giving a presentation on um, sort of animal, uh writes and used quite uh you know and i'm embarrassed to say this quite sort of explicit videos of the you know the kill process which i found incredibly traumatic and as a hypocrite i couldn't watch it which is again something where i was completely unconscious because you cannot vent or project or make something wrong um but unfortunately that's my sort of evolution i'm working on it but the reaction was um and and you know anywhere anywhere when i when i behave like that is complete shutdown strengthened in terms of their resolve um uh, or complete sort of disconnect you know um and and that's you know when you look at uh, what am i trying to achieve here i don't achieve that um so i i i do agree with you that uh, you know you need to take um a stance that's practical pragmatic um and is really looking at sort of bridge building as opposed to you know um polarizing debates because the problem with polarized debates is the moment somebody feels wrong well i'm afraid you know their walls are up and and they're straightly you know they're straight into that sort of defense or offense uh position so there's a lot of wisdom uh in in what you say and i certainly think you're also talking from experience as well
1: (laughs) no absolutely i think i think trying to avoid provoking defensive reaction i mean pe- people feel very sensitive about this you know as we, as we've talked about food is something that matters to people and this is an issue that is you know it's in you know in Engaging on food is much harder than engaging on research experimentation, for example, because research experimentation is the kind of thing that people can sign a petition about and share it on Facebook, um, and they can feel, they feel like they've, they've done their bit, or you know, maybe pay attention to the, you know, uh, cosmetics and, and, and so on. But you know, it's it it's, it doesn't hit in relation to ordinary everyday, uh, you know, demands on everyday practice in the same way that uh, food does, um, and so. So, yeah, rhetorically, I think trying to take people into an awareness of what's going on and an awareness of why they've got reasons to care about what's going on without uh, 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 giving rise to a whole lot of sort of stacked defensive uh, reactions is I, that's what I, I see as, as as really important in relation for a, uh, in relation to effective communication, so f- f- my aim is to get people into a space in which they are open to hearing, re- you know, rethinking and think and coming out of a of a of a meeting thinking, yeah, I've got reasons. <laughs> for rethinking what i'm uh doing Um, and i've got an opportunity to do something and i understand something of what i could do positively here rather than triggering a whole range of defensive reactions and guilt and anger which is really easily done if you don't um uh handle it handle these issues well
0: You're absolutely uh, incredibly important. And the other thing is uh, collaborative work, which I'm incredibly passionate about because I think, you know, as a a system uh, where sort of our education system is very siloed. So my classic joke is, you know, I was brought up with, um, uh, you know, three friends, one became a cardiologist, the other, uh, you know, the sibling became a, a neurologist and the other one became a GP and I'm at a party, I've got a headache and I ask, and the neurologist says, oh, but I don't deal with that part of the brain. The cardiologist says, Sorry, I only deal with the heart. And the GP says, Take a Panadol. So <laughs> <laughs> that's, you know, three incredibly bright um, individuals sort of giving advice. And that's a siloed system. And law is very much like that as well. And so, how do we step out of those silos and think more sort of systemically and more holistically? And 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 from that look at that more collaboratively, so I know that um, uh, you know, there are great institutions that are looking at uh, you know medics looking at sort of plant based nutrition. Uh, Dr Shuin Kassam does work on that um, and veterinary work on that um, Dr Andrew Knight is looking at sort of um, educating from a science and research base um, on you know um, that you know pets um, which in terms of animal rights and anathema in itself, but once we're at that stage where we do have pets, how can we sort of ensure that we're not feeding the more sentient animals? So it's almost like you've opened Pandora's box, so you might start from religion, but I'm afraid it, it's like tentacles everywhere, into every facet. what you wear. Uh, you know, uh, it's extraordinary, you know, the, anything I buy now it's become complex, you know, um, and, 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 and so are people ready for that journey because we're living in a world where we've just had COVID, which was extraordinarily stressful. Um, impacted a lot of people's lives. the The wage divide between the very rich and the, you know it's getting incredibly you know the number of billionaires and the number of people just trying to survive are frontline workers and you know through all the sort of um, you know stress uh, and 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 on what they're paid. When you have that sort of context, how do we introduce something which is incredibly sort of um, uh, heavy and in, incredibly impactful? You know, so perhaps, you know, how, how do we introduce it in a collaborative, supportive, solution-orientated way? Um, whether, David, you set up sort of courses that people go into, are immersed in it, and then, you know, the second and third or fourth day, um, you know, experts come in with different sort of dimensions of how to make it easier, because here I am, an ethical vegan, with a, a vegan dog who's thriving at 14, you can survive. Um, admittedly, you do become a little hermetic, but you know there, that's <laughs> there, it's a growing sort of uh, you know there's more and more vegans now. So I suppose um, it's it's almost as an academic as a, as a teacher, as a bridge builder, uh, what are the innovative ways that you could uh, you know develop uh, this into um, uh, you know a, a, a way that's sort of more constructive in it's an engagement?
1: So, yeah, I'm the in my own work um, engaging with um, uh, a sort of Christian audience seems to be an obvious uh, first step. Just because you know that's where I'm located as a person of faith. It's my uh, sort of academic uh, specialism, and it's also an issue of you know it's it's a it's a it's an area of where there's a problem, right? Because um, as we've talked about. Um, uh, be, uh, people in Christian churches often think they've got faith-based reasons for not being concerned about animals, and so that has seemed to me to be an area where it's worth me investing my time because um, because there's a problem that needs solving, and you know, not not enough people um, qualified and motivated to, to do the work. Um, but I've always been interested in ways of building. Um, sort of coalitions out beyond that Um, so um, say in relation to um, interfaith engagements on animals I I am quite allergic to uh, the kinds of approaches that say well all religions are about the same and they all say the same thing um, about animals and so let's just get sort of distill this message about animals and then tell it to everyone because I think that's likely to be remarkably ineffective because people who belong to particular faith traditions are Unlikely to recognise what's being told to them about their faith once it's been distilled in that kind of way, but um, I'd be really interested. So, creature kind, for example, which is this um, non-profit you mentioned that's set up to um, help Christians engage with farm animal welfare, has always wanted to go deep in relation to Christian faith and interpretation of scripture and so on to um, make the case that this is something that that sort of goes. Uh, that, that is something that's recognizable to, to people belonging to that faith tradition. I'd be really keen to encourage that kind of in depth engagement in other traditions too. We're doing some work in the States at the moment um, in parallel between sort of Christian uh, uh, churches engaging with their faith traditions and then Jewish congregations and organizations engaging with uh, their traditions too, and hoping to get to the point where we can sort of learn across those uh, traditions as well. Um, and then, more broadly, I, you know, obviously, um, it would be great uh, to be able to build out um, uh, coalitions between religious and non-religious secular engagements uh, too. And I'm certainly really keen on making common cause on you know, particular issues whenever that looks like it's um, going to be uh, effective and uh, uh, beneficial. Um, and the key challenge there, I think. You know, for any one person trying to engage in the sphere, is well, what kind of messages are being effectively communicated, uh, and you know, so so that the, there isn't a great need for sort of X or Y, and what kinds of engagements might be missing, um, and um, yeah, I'm always interested in thinking about the, the, how to how to be effective in sort of contributing missing pieces. Uh, the one spin-off from Creature Kind was this uh, project called Default Veg, yes, which, which yes. we were in, we were engaging we were engaging with um, sort of Christian theological colleges about the kinds of think, ways they might think about their catering and academic societies, uh, and we sort of came up with this idea. Um, okay, well let's sort of badge this thing Default Veg, which is not that you um, uh, take all animal products off 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 the menu completely but you default to providing plant-based foods. And if people want to um, choose meat, they can tick a special box and they'll be given uh, meat, you know, at a conference or a gathering or whatever. Um, And we found, and then since then, peer-reviewed academic research has found, actually that means that almost everyone, you know, very few people um, think to not do the default thing. And so you achieve about an 80% switch to plant-based foods or an 80% reduction in animal products without anyone feeling like they've had their choice taken away from them. Um, And we quickly realized, well, actually, this isn't anything specific to academic or Christian context. So let's find a way of trying to pitch that uh, much more uh, generally. So I worked with uh, Better Food Foundation in the US for them to sort of take that on as a campaign where they're engaging a, you know, broad secular audience and so I'm absolutely kind of interested in examples like that where, with the right idea, um, it can be uh, something that, you know, reaches well beyond a, um, a, a Christian audience.
0: I, I I like that very much. I mean, my heritage and background is Sikhism, so it's a religion that's only 500 years old. and um... And forgive me, this is my wording and my interpretation, but um, you know all was going well until the 10th guru, so a guru is a teacher, um, where he started hunting and that was the context of the time so. um, um, And that troubled me um, a lot, because I I think um, when you're uh, in the world um but you know um what's the expression you're uh, of the world but not in it you know um that these things don't matter but the the hunting really did trouble me because that that was what was done by kings and that was to show that um you know i am also a king but the but but forgive me what i wanted to lead to was that um there's free food vegetarian food that's given all over the world which i do love and they're doing a lot in terms of the homeless here, which I think is fantastic. Usually Mm -hmm. it's uh, individuals who are going there to pray will get free food and uh, what they're working towards now, which I think is fantastic, is that people who have food at home don't need to necessarily go there. It might be just, know uh you know a symbolic to have you know something that's blessed um but open it up so the kitchens are open to the homeless people and those so i'm really glad that's happening Mm. but i think certainly in terms of you know the food or the composition of the food which is predominantly milk uh that's sourced for the rice pudding or the butter um Mm. that's used um that could be alternatively sourced because we're talking about how many multi-millions around the globe um it's quite a sort of successful sort of uh community and if they would go alternative but again that's that's a whole sort of uh you know uh discussion that needs to be had um because it's so rooted in the culture and the and the food is so symbolic of you know having spent a morning praying and then to eat that blessed food which is um, vegetarian but still milk bla- milk based and mm-hmm. the supply chains around the dairy industry as we know are, are horrific and the suffering and the torture that these animals have so I do like what you've done with default veg and um, I do hope there's a way of sort of looking at other sort of spaces and places um, for that and um, david absolutely extraordinary work but i'm not going to let you go until you've given um the um listeners uh just an introduction to your two books so what do they have to look forward to um i'm so excited i've purchased them and i'm really genuinely looking forward to really relishing and immersing myself into them you uh, write incredibly well um, you know, you're very much grounded in your faith and you're you're really bringing that forward. And I, I find that really um, inspiring. So um, I, I know that you talk about sort of creation, reconciliation and redemption, just give us a sort of taste of what, uh, you know, the uh, volume one and volume two is about. Um, and and yeah. I will put the link for the books at the bottom along with your bio at the end of the podcast. So I'd be delighted if you would just give us a sort of, uh, you know, an intro.
1: Thank you. Yeah. So this is a sort of two volume academic monograph, which is exploring um, uh, Christian theology in relation to animals in volume one and Christian ethics in response in relation to animals in volume two. So if people are interested in where animals uh, might feature in Christian the- theology, uh, they could have a look at volume one. And as you say, that's divided into sort of major Christian doctrinal headings of creation, reconciliation, and redemption. And it basically walks through um, saying, well, what would it mean to uh, talk about uh, uh, Christian uh, faith under these headings with animals in mind? And so uh, uh, under uh, creation, it asks questions like, what's the point of creation? What's, what's creation for? Um, and it sort of tries to head off um and critique uh, the the kinds of arguments that we talked about earlier which is saying that creation is for human beings it makes the case that that's actually a very bad theological answer as to what god's end is in creation and a better understanding would be to recognize that in creation god seeks to be gracious to all creatures and uh, creatures glorify god in their flourishing and that so that provides a basis for a really Uh, strong affirmation of the value of non-human animal life. And then goes on to think about um, good ways and bad ways in Christian theological and in wider secular philosophical uh, traditions. People have thought about differences between creatures and critiques various versions of human uniqueness, which separates humans from uh, other kinds of uh, creatures and really seeks to set out a theology that places human beings as creatures alongside creatures, um, thinking about our responsibilities, you know, from that, uh, location, um, under reconciliation. So that's, um, the technical term for Christian thinking about, um, God's work in, uh, Jesus Christ. And often people might think, okay, well, under doctrine of creation, there might be a space for animals, but once we get to Jesus, it's all about, uh, human beings. And I make the case that actually there's lots of, uh, texts in the gospels in terms of, uh, understanding about um, Jesus's relationship with a wider natural world and Christian beliefs about what uh, the work of God in Jesus Christ means for the reconciliation of all things in heaven and earth, not just uh, human beings. So animals are, and other creatures are sort of uh, have, have to do with a Christian commitment to what God uh, does in Jesus Christ as well. And then finally, in terms of uh, that third doctrinal heading of redemption, Again, um, some uh, Christian accounts have thought of redemption as just um, a sort of a select group of human souls being taken off to this kind of spiritual ethereal uh, place in salvation. Uh, And I try to make the case that actually that's... um, uh, there are much wider resources for Christian thinking about what God's aim is in redemption that are inclusive of all kinds of uh, creatures, including animals. And, that, uh, and the prominent Christians, like you said, I was a, a Methodist um, lay preacher and John Wesley, who was the founder of Methodism, preached a very famous sermon called The General Deliverance, where he said um, the Bible is clear That animals will be redeemed by God, and that that has implications for how we treat animals here and now. And he was very concerned about the suffering of animals that he saw on on the streets in his 18th century context. Um, So so that's the work, that's the kind of theological work I do in in volume one. And then volume two turns to say, okay, well, what, what are we doing to animals at the moment? And so I think even people not terribly interested in sort of specifics of Christian theology might be interested in having a look at volume two, which tries to chapter by chapter survey what we're doing to animals in as we use them for food, for labor, uh, for textiles, for sport and entertainment, for research experimentation, um, as pets and companion animals and our impacts on wild animals. And it tries to kind of take an overview of what's going on in relation to human use of other animals in those ways, and then say, okay, well, um, what might we have sort of Christian reason to do in relation to rethinking uh, those practices? So it gets very practical in relation to trying to understand what's going on at the moment, and then thinking about what might be Christian ethical responsibility in, in response. And I'm sure... There'll be lots of um, sort of common cause in relation to the um, proposals I have in relation to uses of animals for, for food and experimentation and uh, uh, other contexts too.
0: Absolutely fantastic, David. What's great about this is um, really understanding, uh, you know, your critical thinking um, on this, and I think it's really a seminal important work. Um, that, you know, um, individuals who aren't even Christians need to look at Um, and I take your point about, you know, you cannot sort of, uh, uh, you know, distill generally and talk about all religions, but I think it's a fantastic foundation for individuals who want to, uh, you know, perhaps take or initiate this journey, perhaps in different faiths as well, to Mm -hmm. really sort of appreciate, um, you know, the work, the journey and the thinking that you've uh, put into this um a real joy to speak with you today and um really grateful for your time and i'll be putting all the details um um, and including how to get in contact with you at the uh, bottom of this blog so thank you so much david
1: thanks for the invitation it's been lovely to talk ruby
0: thank you